Beloved, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Judges. We'll be in chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. If you're visiting us and using a Bible in the chairs, it is found on page 209. And if you do not own a Bible or a good Bible, please take that as our gift to you. Judges, chapter 3, verses 7 to 31. If you are able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God and worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he sold them to King Cushan Rishathaim of Aram Naharaim. And the Israelites served him eight years. The Israelites cried out to the Lord, So the Lord raised up Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. The Spirit of the Lord came on him, and he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle, and the Lord handed over King Cushan, Rishathaim of Aram, to him, so that Othniel overpowered him. Then the land had peace for forty years, and Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites served King Eglon of Moab 18 years. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he raised up Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed Benjaminite, as a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him with the tribute for King Eglon of Moab. Ehud made himself a double-edged sword, 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes and brought the tribute to King Eglon of Moab, who was an extremely fat man. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it. At the carved images near Gilgal, he returned and said, Eglon, I have a secret message for you. The king said, Silence, and all his descendants left him. Then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his upstairs room where it was cool. Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And the king stood up from his throne. Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into Eglon's belly. Even the handle went in after the blade, and Eglon's fat closed in over it, so that Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly, and the waste came out. Ehud escaped by way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of the upstairs room behind him. Ehud was gone when Eglon's servants came in. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought he was relieving himself in the cool room. The servants waited until they became embarrassed and saw that he, was, he had still not opened the doors of the upstairs room. So they took the key and opened the doors, and there was their Lord lying dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while the servants waited. He passed the Jordan near the carved images and reached Sira. After he arrived, he, he sounded the ram's horn throughout the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites came down with him from the hill country, and he became their leader. He told them, follow me, because the Lord has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. So they followed him, 
captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab and did not allow anyone to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all stout and able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped. Moab became subject to Israel that day, and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud, Shamgar, son of Anath, became judge. He also delivered Israel, striking down 600 Philistines with the cattle prod. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. In the 19th century, in American society, and especially in the American South where slavery was institutionalized, African-American women were the most despised people. They were enslaved, abused, maligned, oppressed, and objectified. Slavery wasn't sweet. Oftentimes, the slaves, they prayed persistently for freedom. During that time, it would have been unfathomable for both slaves and slave masters that the freedom that the slaves prayed for, that some would be freed by the efforts of an African-American woman. In their minds, it would have been considered the most unlikely to deliver some slaves into freedom. And yet, in the sovereignty of God, there was an African-American woman by the name of Harriet Tubman who escaped the horrors of chattel slavery herself through the Underground Railroad and would go back in free 70 slaves. The most unlikely would do what is perceived as the impossible and free 70 people. She would go on to be named the Black Moses. Beloved, God uses the unlikely people and means to accomplish his purposes. Scripture, from beginning to end, testifies to this truth. Think about Moses, who had a speech impediment, and yet God would raise him up to speak to Pharaoh, telling him to let God's people go. Think about King David, the youngest of all of his siblings, a little shepherd boy, will be anointed to be king, and it was that same David will be used to slay Goliath with a slingshot and some stones. Beloved, as we even think about our salvation, Think about the instrument by which God used to save his people from their sins. A cross. At that time, the cross was seen as shameful and humiliating. 
And yet that would be the very instrument by which the, our Savior would hang to save his people from their sins. Beloved, think about the apostles whom God used to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. They weren't Ivy League students. They didn't graduate valedictorian of their class. The scripture says in Acts chapter 4 that they were common and untrained men. And they would be the very ones whom God used to advance the gospel. But beloved, let me bring this home to us. Think about you and I. We ain't that great. Not in the world's eyes. And yet God in his love and grace would choose us, he would save us, and he would choose to use us for the advancement of his gospel in this city to the ends of the earth. God uses who and what he chooses to accomplish his glorious purposes for his glory alone. We will see that in this morning's text. And so our big idea is God uses the unlikely to deliver his people for his glory. God uses the unlikely to deliver his people for his glory. Three points for us. Points of exhortation. First, remember the Lord. Second, boast in God's power. Third, behold God's salvation. Remember the Lord. Boast in God's power. And behold God's salvation. In our text, we're going to see the first two cycles of the five R's that we talked about last time. Israel is going to rebel. God is going to respond. There's going to be repentance. God's going to rescue, and the land will have rest. We're going to see three judges this morning. First point, remember the Lord. Look at verses 7 and 8. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God and worshiped the Baals and the Asherahs. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he sold them to King Cushan Rishathaim of Aram Naharaim, and the Israelites served him eight years. So the Israelites, God's covenant people, they sinned egregiously. The text said that they did what was evil, and the evil is twofold. They forgot the Lord, and they worshiped idols, forgetting the Lord. This phrase is not referring to some sort of slipping of the mind or deleting information from one's memory. This is a disregard of their covenant-making and covenant-keeping Lord. Their God who in his love and grace saved them from slavery to Egypt, in Egypt, promised to take them to the promised land and has fulfilled it. The very God who they have entered into covenant relationship with, the very one who they owe their existence, their allegiance, their affections, and their obedience. 
It's not that they didn't have knowledge of him. It's rather they disregarded him. Tim Keller would say this forgetting of the Lord here is Israel was no longer being controlled by what they knew. They deliberately forsook the Lord and served idols. The text says Baals and Asherahs. We talked about the Baals last time, the Asherahs. This was a foreign god. This was a goddess of fertility, oftentimes associated with wood. And Asherah would be mentioned numerous times throughout the Old Testament. What we have here is God's covenant people looking exactly like the pagan nations around them. Idolatry has pervaded their area to where carved images were throughout the city. And God's response was loving discipline. That he would hand over power over them. He would hand power over them to a foreign and wicked king likely from Mesopotamia. To where this king would oppress them for a long time, eight years. God is doing this in hopes to lead them to repentance. One commentary would say that Israel served foreign gods, and so God had them serve a foreign king. And life wasn't sweet. For eight long years, they were oppressed. And God was being patient with his people all the way until they cried out to him. Well, the first two verses is really sobering when you think about it. Because we who are in Christ, we've been transformed by the grace of God through believing the gospel. We have been made new. And at the same time, we're also susceptible to forgetting the Lord. If we're not meditating upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we're not beholding his glory and his grace, if with our lives we're not singing like we sung, how worthy, how worthy is the king in all of his beauty, then we will forsake the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We will choose to rebel. Forsaking Christ, the one in whom there is life, joy, and peace, and serve sin. Beloved, to do so is to pursue one's own demise, and it leads to one's own destruction. The reality is, remembering the Lord takes effort. No one does this passively. We need the Lord's grace, and by God's grace, we are to intentionally remain, uh, remain in the word, Meditating upon God's promises and his saving work through the gospel. We are to remember the Lord. And as we do so, we are to take captive any sinful thought that would lead us to stray from Christ. Beloved, intentionally remembering the Lord 
includes that by the grace of God, we're to crucify our flesh with its passions and desires. That we not forsake our glorious king who bought us. If we're going to be a people who remember the Lord, we need to be living among a community who will spur us on. Who's going to remind us of Jesus' saving work and call us to faithfulness in following him for he is worthy of our love, our affections, and our obedience. Oh, beloved, remember the Lord for life is at stake. Verse 9 says, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, so the Lord raised up Othniel. You know, what's so amazing about our Lord is that though we can forget him, he never forgets us. Never forgets us. God heard their cry, and in love, he showed compassion upon them. And the very same God who did that for them is the same God who is our Father in Christ Jesus. When we cry out to him with contrition, he responds with mercy. He forgives. He rescues. Beloved, take comfort that our God is a merciful God who remembers his people. Regardless of what, what sin one has committed, how far one has strayed, how long they have been gone, God continues to show mercy. And when we cry out, he comes for us because he loves us. Let me talk to the children in the room. You know, kids, you guys are likely familiar with the cartoon Paw Patrol. May have been your favorite cartoon as you watch it now. You know, in the show, you have these pups who always come to the rescue for anyone who is in danger. You know, Ryder, who's the leader, he has that, that continual phrase that he says almost every episode. After they make a deliverance, he says, whenever you're in trouble, just yelp for help. And the Paw Patrol comes to the rescue. Well, kids, that's what Jesus does for sinners. And it's even greater than what the Paw Patrol would ever do. That regardless of what type of trouble we're in, the trouble that we have brought upon ourselves for our sins, or the trouble, a troubling situation, if we cry out to Jesus, trusting in him, he always comes to the rescue. Children, if you love Paw Patrol, how much more should you love Jesus? Because it's not a cartoon. He ain't a cartoon. He's a real Savior whom your parents have cried upon, and we're praying that you will cry upon him, cry out to him as well. And so Israel, they cried out to the Lord, and God in his mercy raised up a deliverer, Othniel. We talked about him in chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. He's a non-Jew who has been converted. He's, been a, he's now united 
to God's people. He's a part of the tribe of Judah. And y'all, this is the best judge in the book. The most unfamiliar. And yet the best. There's absolutely nothing negative about Othniel in this account. And yet he'll be used to deliver God's people by God's spirit and power. Verse 10 says, the spirit of the Lord came on him. Now, during this time in salvation history, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, will come upon and empower specific people for God's specific purposes. Think about Moses. Think about Bezalel in erecting the tabernacle. The judges, King Saul and King David. The Spirit empowered them for specific purposes purposes. When the coming of Jesus and Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon Christ, God's eternal son, his chosen servant, Israel's messianic king. The Spirit descended upon him that he may bring about salvation, reversing the curse through his death and resurrection on the cross rose from the grave and promised that he would send the Spirit. And so for all who trust in Jesus, we are part of God's new covenant community. The Spirit of Christ now indwells within us. God has promised this through the prophets, like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Joel. Beloved, we have God's Spirit, and the Spirit empowers and fills us to do God's will now. Here you have this judge. God would use, God would give him strength to overpower this wicked judge. Not wicked judge, but this wicked king. By the providence of God, he defeated the king. And it resulted in the land having peace for 40 years. This account has bare minimum details. And yet he's the best judge. In fact, he's the prototypical judge to which we would hope and expect that every account of the judges will be very similar to Othniel's. And yet, every judge just gets worse and worse. Beloved, may we be a people who remember the Lord, not forsaking Christ, but serving him because he is worthy he has redeemed us by his blood. And when we forget, may we remember that he's merciful. We'll be a people who remember the Lord. May we also be a people who boast in God's power. Boast in God's power. I said there was a generation of rest for 40 years. And then a cycle began again. Israel rebelled against God. Once again, God's response is loving discipline. Look at the second part of verse 12, where it says, He gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. So King Eglon, interesting, his name means little calf or little bull. And this king was everything but little. 
Verse 17 says that he was a really obese man. Likely really fat from the tributes that were brought to him. He was a Moabite. The Moabites, they were descendants of Lot. So this king, he goes, he forms a coalition with the Ammonites, who are also some of Lot's descendants, and the Amalekites. They journeyed to the promised land and conquered a few tribes and captured the city of Jericho. And the discipline lasted much longer. First it was eight years, and now it was 18 long years. And God continued to be patient with his people. But eventually they would cry out to him. And once again, God responded with mercy. Not being tired of them, but continuing to show mercy upon them. Why? Because he revealed himself in Exodus 34, 6 as a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. And once again, we see him living out what he has said about himself, showing mercy to faithless, fickle, and rebellious people. This time, God responds with mercy, and he raises up Ehud. Ehud. Now, eyes would have been wide open and mouths would have dropped about this judge whom God has chosen. It was this judge whom the world would have considered to be unfit to serve as a judge for Israel, to serve as a deliverer whom God would use. And why? Well, verse 15 says that Ehud, the son of Gera, was a left-handed Benjaminite. This is a very important detail. Because Benjamin, the tribe that he's from, the name Benjamin, it means son of the right hand. And yet Ehud was a lefty. In fact, when it talks about him being left-handed, the term is actually getting at restricted in the right hand. Could have been a deformity. We don't know. Very important detail and confounding. And why? Because Scripture talks about the right hand very often. Symbolizing of power and ability and strength. Think about Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Think about Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Scripture don't say much about the left hand. It's pretty silent. Even when we think about image bearers throughout the world, most of the world are right-handed people. If I were to take a poll here, 
Raise your hand, your right hand. I'm confident that most people will be raising their hands. Think about grade school. Most desks that students get in is conducive for right-handed people. So left-handed. They be perceived as different, can easily be ridiculed, can easily be viewed as inferior, as weak, possibly useless. And yet in the sovereignty of God, in his power, he not only made Ehud a lefty, he would choose to use what would be considered as weak in the world's eyes that he may display his glorious power. We saw it in the scripture reading, 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29. God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. Rather, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is what God does. When you survey church history, it is God using sinful, weak, and frail people to accomplish his purposes for his glory. Beloved, God does not use us because we're great. Newsflash, we ain't. God uses us because he's gracious. Think about what scripture says about us. 2 Corinthians 4 says that we are fragile clay jars with treasure inside of us. And he uses weak, frail dust balls like you and I, that's what Dr. Robert Smith would say, we are nothing but dust balls. From dust and to dust that we will return, God uses us to accomplish his purposes, to display his extraordinary power. Beloved, how often can we assume that our limitations and our weaknesses disqualify us from being used by God? I'm not as much of a good speaker, or I, I just fumble over my words, and so it's so hard for me to, to do this. Or even, man, I'm not that good with kids, and so I can't serve in that area. The reality is, beloved, God is not bound by our limitations. We have limitations. He doesn't. And the other thing is that he loves to use the weak that he may display his power. And in fact, as he uses us in our weakness, one of the things that we learn is just how amazing and powerful he is. We learn more dependence upon him. And it results in us boasting in him alone. But when God in his grace calls us to Christ and then dispatches us to be used by him, he's not calling us to be great. 
He has the greatness taken care of all by himself. He is calling us to be faithful. We don't have to be great. We only have to be faithful. And as we do so, he may choose to use our faithfulness to accomplish great things for his glory. Beloved Ehud, left-handed Benjaminite, he wasn't great or glorious in the world's eyes, but rather he could easily be conceived as weak, considered as weak. And yet God chose him to flex his power. The very God who used Ehud is the same God who raised Christ from the dead and the same God who dwells within us by his spirit and the same God who wants to demonstrate his glorious power in and through us to the praise of his glory. Brother, may we not be a people who use our weaknesses as excuses, but rather may we be a people who give God our weaknesses that he may display his power, power and that we may boast in him and in what he does for his glory. Oh, beloved, may we be a people who boast in God's power. So boast in his power, but also, beloved, behold God's salvation. Behold God's salvation. In verses 15 to 17, this deliverer whom God has chosen to use, he devised an assassination attempt. Purposefully and discreetly hiding this 18-inch sword under his right thigh, by his right thigh. And why? The majority of the world were right-handed at that time. They didn't have metal detectors. And so the guards would search the people, they would search the left side. Why? Because majority of people were right-handed, and so that's where a weapon would be hidden. And so Ehud, he snuck the weapon in. Now, I want to be very clear real quick. This isn't, God is not condoning this deception or this plan. So don't think that, man, hey, I, just, hey, I can do a coup and God will be good with it. But rather, God in his sovereignty uses all things, the good and the bad, to accomplish his purposes for his glory. He uses it all. He who has the plan, he who seeks to carry it out. In verses 18 to 20, he presents a tribute. He left. He returned to King Eglon with the message. And it's likely he had did it this way because King Eglon just saw him, and so he may have had a he may have had favor with the king. And so he returns saying, King, I got a secret message for you. And the king foolishly responded by commanding all of his guards to exit and leave him along with Ehud. Because he said he had a secret message. So he's alone. He was vulnerable. And then Ehud said, verse 20, I have a message from God for you. 
So Eglon stands up in reverence, ready to receive this message, placing himself in the most vulnerable position. He's obese, he's alone, he's standing, he's defenseless, and he's duped. Ehud saw his opportunity, and he took his shot. He grabbed his 18-inch sword from his right thigh and drove it into Eglon's belly. Eglon's belly enveloped the sword, and it killed him. And then feces came out. And then what happened next, you would think was a scene from Ocean's Eleven. Ehud makes his way of escape. He locks the door, likely walks past the guards. And then the guards. See the doors locked, smelling the feces, so assume that the king is on the toilet. And so that what they do, they waited and waited and waited and waited until they became embarrassed over how long he may have been on the potty. And so then they go, <laughs> my bad, y'all. <laughs> and so then they go and grab the key. They check in verse 25, says, And there was their Lord lying dead on the floor. Behold, they're in shock. Can't believe it. And their king has been killed. Moab was vulnerable. And in verses 26 to 28, Ehud goes to his people and he says he sees this from a theological perspective. He announced victory in the salvation that God is bringing about. Look at verse 28. He said, follow me because the Lord has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. What happened next is, in the providence of God, these tribes would defeat the Moabites. They cut off the resources to where Moabites couldn't have help. And they killed a large number of able body or strong soldiers. In the providence of God, this victory was total. Unlike Ehud, who escaped, it said that the Moabites, not one, escaped. God would save his people through the efforts of a left-handed man who may have been perceived as weak. Behold God's power to save, beloved. God is so powerful that throughout the Old Testament, he delivered his people in a variety of ways. Think about Israel being enslaved in Egypt. 
God would deliver through plagues. And then God would lead them through the Red Sea where they are walking on dry ground. And God would crush Pharaoh and his men. Think about Othniel. God would use this man to overpower a wicked king and deliver his people. And then God will use Ehud, a left-handed judge in one of the craziest of ways that you just can't make this up and can't believe that it happened this way. Beloved, behold God's salvation. And these ways point to the greatest of way by which God would save his people. God would save Jew and Gentile together through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The eternal son humbled himself, becoming a man. The king of glory will become a servant of mankind. Walking the earth that he spoke into existence. And there was no deception with Jesus. The scriptures would say that there was no deceit found in his mouth. Jesus was and is sinless. The very person whom God has chosen. God didn't raise him up. God sent him from heaven because he is the eternal son of God. And think about the way by which how God would save his people. Jesus conquered. It wasn't through combat. It was through crucifixion. Jesus pierced nobody. And yet his hands were pierced on an old rugged cross. And on that cross... Jesus would bear the wrath that you and I deserve for our sins. Beloved, God's salvation was through judgment. That Christ would die for our sins. To save you and I. That the author of life will be put to death that we may live. The way is so confounding that Jesus' death on the cross was victory through the image of defeat. To where he hung and died. And three days later, he would walk right out the tomb. Behold God's glorious salvation for you and I in his Son. That we have been rescued. Not because we're amazing or because he's gracious. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus because of God's love for you and I in Christ. We've been freed. We've been forgiven. We have been saved. Behold God's salvation, beloved. Friends, if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, this is the gospel. I am so glad that you are here. God loves you. Christ came to rescue sinners. You and I, we rebelled against God. And what was God's response? Not retribution, but rescue. 
Because the king became man and suffered on our behalf. And God wants to save you. Salvation comes by trusting in his son. Friends, I would implore you this very day, don't reject King Jesus, but rather receive him by faith that you may be forgiven and have life. For life is only found in him. If you want, you can talk with any of our members after service. We love having conversations about Jesus. Beloved, behold God's salvation in Christ. That in his love he would save us. What's so amazing is that God uses the unlikely. Think about the judges. Ehud was a left-handed Benjaminite. Shamgar, in verse 31, was likely a Gentile. And yet he was a judge for Israel, a deliverer. And Shamgar says the instrument that he used to strike down 600 Philistines with a cattle prod. This little instrument of teaching oxen. The most unlikely of instrument you could think of to be used to save people. Now, if you're blown away by that instrument, think about the instrument of the cross. That through the death of Jesus on the cross, God would save his people. Beloved, the cross was scandalous. Which is why the message of the cross is foolish. That a king will become man and die for his servants and die a shameful, humiliating death? It is ludicrous. And yet, it actually happened. And it was through the wisdom and power of God to display his glory in this way. The most unfathomable way that we could think of is the way by which God has chosen to save his people. That we may be humbled, that God may be exalted. Praise be to God, beloved. We only don't glory in God's salvation now. We're going to glory in for all of eternity. And we're not going to ever forget, get over what God has done for us through the most unlikely instrument the cross of Jesus Christ. We're going to praise forever our glorious King because in his love he has come to rescue us. Praise be to God. Let's pray.